Great, now we'll have a look at our message for today, which is from Luke chapter 9 and verse 51 to chapter 10, verse 37. My husband likes films about secret agents, spy thrillers. The more crashing and banging, car chases, motorbikes going up and down steps, or speedboats creating waves, the better he likes it. Personally, I have come to the conclusion that it's a great deception by the film industry. They change the title, occasionally change the actors, but actually, it's the same film, repeated over and over again. It's just always some, um, some agent who's trying to save the world from some evil despot. So, in the passage we're going to look at today, there's quite a lot happening. And I was trying to see if there was a theme that just connected all of the narrative together, and it seems to be that the theme is mission. So we're going to read, first of all, from Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 56. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messages on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. Now we see here that Jesus knew what his mission was. He resolutely set out for Jerusalem. We can see here what Jesus' mindset was. He set his face like a flint. He knew he was sent by the Father, and he knew that the mission, his mission, was to save the world from sin by his death on the cross. He was no rogue agent. He was not making up the terms of his mission. As the old hymn says, there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gates of heaven and let us in. There was no plan B. It was this mission or the world was lost. But in order to get to Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples had to pass through a Samaritan village where the people were not very welcoming. Relationships between Jews and Samaritans were frosty. Jewish travelers were often harassed as they passed through Samaritan territory. Now, James and John were two brothers that Jesus had nicknamed Sons of Thunder. So their noses were right out of joint by this rejection. And their solution was not without precedent because in 1 Kings chapter 1, Elijah had called down fire from heaven and that consumed a captain and 50 men of the king. But these two brothers seem to have misunderstood the nature of Jesus' mission. He came to save those who initially reject him. And later, we can read in Acts chapter 8 that when Philip goes to Samaria, many accepted the word of God there in Samaria. So the people in Samaria did get saved at a later date. The important lesson here is that for those who continue to reject God's offer of salvation through Jesus Christ, judgment will come. But it's not for us to do the judging. I'm sure there are a number of church world leaders, not church, not church leaders, I don't mean, I mean world leaders at the moment, who we would like to see God rain down fire from heaven. I'm sure we can all think of one or two, but it's not for us to do that. You know, we leave the judging to God. It's mine to avenge, says the Lord. 
we are sent to show love and to share the good news with others. So at this point, they simply moved to the next village. And we'll read on 57 to 62. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. A friend of mine once said that she had put her hand to the plow many years before, but looking back over her shoulder, she could see that it was a very crooked furrow. And I expect that we could all say, you know, we've got our hand on the plow, just, but sometimes we're wandering a little bit from side to side. And here we see three people who thought about following Jesus, who approached him about becoming a disciple and joining the mission, but they realized that for them, the cost was too much. They had plenty of excuses, why not? I can remember you know, years ago when we lost our jobs and as a result of that lost our home and we had to move and I didn't know what the future was going to hold. I didn't know what was going to lie ahead but just leaving that house for the last time, I remember driving away and singing, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Somebody said, and I'm not really quite sure who it was now, but it says, it costs nothing to become a Christian, but it costs everything to live like one. Moving on to chapter 10. And we're reading verse 1 to 16. After this, Jesus, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it would be more bearable on that day for Sodom than it was for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Siren, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes but it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sion at the judgment than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me 
rejects him who sent me. Jesus sends out 72 of his followers, two by two, so they could go and prepare the way. He warned them in advance that not everybody was going to welcome them. These verses make it clear that rejecting the message of the kingdom has terrible consequences in the long run. So as Jesus sends them out on their own, without him being physically there with them, he tells them how to go about it. The time is short, the message is urgent, there's no need for extra luggage, keep focused on the mission, no chit-chat. And it's a good strategy to make the mission sustainable. Jesus had shown them how to do it, they watched him do it, they watched him as he carried out his mission, he instructs them and then lets them try it out for themselves. And this is how to leave a legacy, how the church is in existence today. Our missionary friend Claire is training two other people to take over from her if and when she ever leaves. When I was in Africa with Mercy Ships, we were training some women farmers in beekeeping, but we worked in partnership with the Forestry Commission so that the work would carry on after the ship had left, which is what Mercy Ships always do to make it sustainable working with local agencies. Then 17 to 24, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. The 72 return rejoicing, having witnessed a display of God's power. And it's great when we see the Lord working, souls being saved, prayers being answered, but an even greater joy to know that our names are written in heaven, no matter what is going on in our lives just now. And we all know that we have those seasons where the Lord is doing amazing things, but mostly it's just the daily round, the common task. C.C. Littlejohn writes, there will be seasons when our passion flows freely, Faith seems solid and living for the kingdom comes easily. Yet if we feel any pressure, we may feel complacency beckon. And I can identify with that one. The lukewarm sets in and with it a sense of disconnect. When we sense these disturbing feelings, we should remember that we are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So to keep our relationship with God robust and devoted, we prioritise our efforts and focus on returning love to God. When we face blocked effectiveness in ministry, we can take joy in remembering that God loves us so profoundly that he longs not for what we can do for him. He longs first for relationship with us. 
The 72 are so excited about what they've seen. And in verse 21, we read that Jesus is full of joy. He encourages their joy, but locates a different foundation. He knew that it always wasn't going to be of exciting times of fruitful ministry. Now we have an unusual dog. Our dog doesn't like going for walks. Early mornings when I pick up the leader, she hides behind the sofa or underneath the table where I can't reach her. When I do get her out of the door, she rolls about on her back. She sits down and refuses to move or she lies on her back with her legs in the air like that and neighbours laugh when I'm towing her up the road like a sledge. But some early mornings, when I pick up a ball and the ball launcher, and she sees that, she's at the door straight away. She's like a dog on a mission. Why? What's the difference? It's what awaits her. It's the end destination. Going to a field where she can be let off the leader and chase a ball, doggy heaven. You see, it's the end destination that makes a difference. It's about the place she's going to. Rejoice, Jesus said, that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that we have this unshakable relationship with our God that will be fully realized in heaven. Second Corinthians chapter 4 says, So we do not look at what we can see at this moment, the troubles all around us, but we look forward to the joys in heaven, which we have not yet seen. The troubles will soon be over, but the joys to come will last forever. Looking around here today, I can see that there are many of us going through difficult times. This life is not always easy. But let me encourage you with the words of Henry Blackaby. I may not always understand my current situation or how things will eventually turn out, but I can trust in the love of Christ proved to me when he laid down his life for me on the cross. In the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God forever convinced me that he loves me. I choose to base my trust in God on what I know, his love for me. And I choose to trust that in time, he will help me to understand that the confusing circumstances I am experiencing will stop. Wise words. Now the narrative changes here to a parable that Jesus told. And it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And even those who've never been to church or have never read a Bible would know what we mean by referring to someone as a Good Samaritan. Someone who goes out of their way to help another. Jesus encounters on his mission an expert in the law who wants to test Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life, he says. Jesus throws the request back to him, the law, how do you read it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbour as yourself. Good answer, Jesus says. Now put it into practice. But this man seems to be trying to justify himself with works and religious observances. He's looking for a loophole. Who is my neighbour? Then Jesus tells this well-known parable out of about a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was mugged and left for dead. Two religious people, a priest and a Levi, passed by on the other side. The injured man, we're 
told, looked half dead. He might be dead, and for the religious people to touch a dead body would have made them ceremonially unclean and unable to enter the temple, so they weren't prepared to take any risks. Jesus then controversially says that a Samaritan looked after the man, putting him on his donkey, taking him to an inn, making sure that he was cared for, all at his own expense. Knowing the relationship between Jews and Samaritans, you can see why this was a controversial story to tell. Jesus asks the expert in the law, which of these three was a neighbor to the injured man? To which he correctly replies, the one who had mercy on him. Go and do likewise, was Jesus' reply. Who are we required to love? Anyone in need. Tim Keller said that we instinctively tend to limit who we help. We do it for people like us, people we like. By depicting a Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus could not have found a more forceful way to see that anyone at all in need, regardless of race, politics, class, and religion, is your neighbor. Though the expert stated, started by asking how he could inherit eternal life, it seems that he wanted to earn it by keeping the law. Now, not everyone is your brother and sister in the faith, but everyone is your neighbor, and you must love your neighbor. Perhaps we are like those who would prefer to pass by on the other side and not get involved. Or perhaps in this story, we are more like the injured man, helpless to save himself, unless somebody comes to rescue him, and us, we will certainly perish. In the same way, we need someone to rescue us from our sin. Jesus is the good, true Samaritan. He came to us while we were still his enemies. He met us when we were dead in trespasses and sin. He paid the price that our soul might be healed. It is only by trusting in Christ's death and resurrection for us that we can inherit eternal life. Once we've understood this, then we are able to continue the mission of Jesus to reach out in love to others. I love a hymn that we have occasionally sang and which I often use as a prayer. May I never lose the wonder, the wonder of the cross. May I see it as the first time, standing as a sinner lost, undone by mercy and left speechless, staring wide-eyed at the cost. May I never lose the wonder, the wonder of the cross. So, your mission, Chaudine, should you choose to accept it, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind, and to love your neighbour as yourself. Amen.